Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for sending your Son to save us. We praise him as the way, the truth, and the life this morning. And we come now to to draw from that well that never runs dry. So would you teach us? Teach us to abide. Teach us to follow. Teach us to trust you. We pray during this time by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. What do you suppose is the most misunderstood, misapplied verse in the Bible? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Those are good candidates. Or maybe all things work together for good, Romans 8.28. There's an entire TV show series on Netflix based on a faulty understanding of that verse. I might argue for another one, though. Matthew 7, verse 1, which begins, Do not judge, or judge not. This verse has been used often by those opposed to Christian morality or by people living in sin. Stop judging me! And you're not my judge. Doesn't Jesus say not to judge others? So they don't understand it. But I also believe that most Christians don't really understand it either. We're confused about it, which paralyzes us from making open moral judgments on just about anything. It hinders our evangelism, our church discipline, our public witness, our holiness, and more. So today, I want to try to to clear the fog a bit and walk us through these famous words of Jesus, but I don't want to only explain what they mean to you. I want to help us apply Jesus' teaching, this, this crucial teaching, to our lives and our hearts today. So if you will, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. A number of years ago now, I think about five or six years ago, I started taking us through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. However, unlike our usual practice of just plowing through 30 straight weeks in a series, I split this journey up into four parts, in starting with the God-blessed life, looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and then talking about but I say to you on the rest of Matthew 5, and then secret righteousness on Matthew 6. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus radically defines what it means to be his follower. Perhaps best summed up by being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're meant to stand out from the world as a distinct counterculture in it. And I'm now finally getting around to doing part four on Matthew 7, which I'm entitling The Way of Jesus. We'll be thinking through five topics in our lives that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 as part of the way of life for his disciples. 
things that impact us almost every day. Now today, we'll begin by discussing Jesus' way of judging or not judging other people. As once Jesus transforms our hearts and lives, it will affect how we treat other people around us. So look with me. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, the main point here seems quite straightforward, right? Even if we don't understand exactly what Jesus means by it all, he's definitely saying we should not judge others for their faults, right? As followers of the way of Jesus, we should not judge others for their faults. That's what he says. And when we first hear the word judge, it may prompt images of judges in courtrooms, right, with robes and wigs and gavels and trials and verdicts and sentences. And these are related images or ideas. But Jesus isn't telling us to never be judges by occupation. He's telling us to not judge others in informal ways, in our minds or our hearts or by our words and actions. Official judges have a legal right to tell someone, you were wrong, and here's the consequences. Here's your sentence. In general, everyday life, though, we don't have that right. God is the judge of everyone, which means he has the right to judge others. But we don't. Judge not that you be not judged. But what does this mean, right? Does it actually mean that we're to never make moral judgments at all? Do people have a point when they say that we can't judge their moral choices or their character, like how they talk or what they consume, who they love or sleep with, how they spend money, what religion they practice, what they believe or how they behave? doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever think critically or express opinions or beliefs about others or even call out sin in each other's lives or tell people what to do or how to live ever. Like, does it mean that, that those things? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It actually can't mean that. Why not? I'll tell you why. Context. Context of where these come. See, in the Bible as a whole, there are a multitude of true, rightful, moral judgments. And it's not just that God the judge pronounces them. He expects us to believe them. And he has his people do the same. Moses, David, the prophets, Paul, Peter, John, and more all pronounce judgments. In John 7.24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And he tells his disciples somewhere else, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's actually in Matthew. And even within Matthew 7, Jesus makes judgments about people. For one example, in verse 15, he warns us to watch out for false teachers, ravenous wolves. But 
how could we watch out for them if we can't judge whether or not they're false? This cannot be a command to suspend critical thinking, turn a blind eye to people's faults, or refuse to discern between good and evil or truth and error. So then, if that's not what Jesus is forbidding, what is he talking about with with judge not? I'm convinced he's talking about what is called judgmentalism, an attitude and action. It's to have a critical, judgmental spirit, a habit of fault-finding in others. As J.C. Ryle explains, what our Lord means to condemn is a fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. And I believe there are two sides to this sin, an internal side and an external side. The internal side stems from self-righteousness and pride, a feeling of superiority, It's setting ourselves over others and constantly looking down on them. It's feeling that that we are always right and others are decidedly not. It's approaching other people already expecting to find faults with them. It's the attitude the Pharisee had. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And it's alarming to think just how natural and pervasive this inclination is for us. I mean, we do this all the time. Just for reference, think of being at church. How many times have we had negative attitudes about other people here even today? You're like, man can't stand that guy. (sighs) I wish she weren't here today. They're such a, a piece of work. So rude. So awkward. So thoughtless. So lazy. Did you see how late they were? Again? Why can't they stop messing up? Why can't they get their toddler under control? Why can't, why are they still masking up? I'd for sure do things better if I were doing what they're doing. You can fill in the blank. Singing, running the soundboard, welcoming people in the nursery, what have you. i do things better. Yeah. Some of these concerns are much more serious than others. Some are totally innocent. Some are sinful. My point is only to show how scary fast our reflexes are to be critical and judgmental, which often leads to despising others or harboring contempt towards them. 
And then, once we're thinking this way internally, this judgmentalism tends to express itself externally or outwardly. Like we've already sinned in our hearts with our self-righteousness and our pride. But then it can show itself in, in unloving behavior towards others. Something, sometimes it shows itself in gossip or slander or plain old grumbling about people. Sometimes in shunning a relationship with them. Sometimes it leads to ungodly forms of criticism or rebuking, unconstructive criticism. Sometimes it leads to outright condemnation, publicly pronouncing their guilt, even acting like God and pronouncing a final judgment on them. They're hopeless, worthless, irredeemable. Might as well be damned. There's an old, really big word that describes this well. That's censoriousness. You know the word censor, right? To, to be censorious is to be hypercritical. It's not to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. So in summary, what Jesus is condemning is the self-righteousness that leads to censoriousness. Or as John Stott describes it, the censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. By the way, the whole world is like this right now, right? People so enjoy seeking out others' failings. Just take a glance on Twitter or on Reddit. <laughs> but before we're going and thinking of someone else who's like this, start with ourselves. Examine our own hearts. Stott goes on. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. Worse, it is to claim the competence and authority to sit in judgment upon one's fellow man. But if I do this, I am casting both myself and my fellows in the wrong role. Since when have they been my servants responsible to me, and since when have I been their Lord and judge? That echoes Romans 14.4, which says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, we're not God. We're not qualified to be the judge. And so Stott concludes, no human being is qualified to be the judge of his fellow humans, for we cannot read each other's hearts or assess each other's motives. To be censorious is to usurp the prerogative of the divine judge, in fact, to try to play God. And there's the heart of it. We aren't the judge. On the contrary, we are among those who are to be judged. And we ought to be living in the constant awareness of the judgment that's coming. That's Jesus' assumption here in these verses, that we would be concerned about this. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, some think that means don't judge others if you don't like them judging you in return. True, but that's not Jesus' point. 
The original language uses words and tenses here, which imply that here Jesus is definitely talking about being judged by God. We are going to be judged by God. Now, if you're a Christian, Christ bore your ultimate and eternal judgment on the cross. You never need to fear hell, God's wrath, or eternal judgment ever again. But the Bible does speak of different forms and levels of judgment, and Christians are, in fact, subject to some of it. For example, some judgment comes through God disciplining us now. And some judgment will lead to the gain or loss of eternal rewards one day. So we will face some judgment. And are, like, are we living under the assumption that this is the only life and the only world? Even if we believe otherwise, are we governed and guided in our daily lives by the knowledge that judgment is coming? And we are going to stand before God one day. And there are absolutely things we will need to answer for. This warning in Matthew 7 is directed to Jesus' disciples. It's intended for people who are already believers. Judge not that you be not judged. So if we are judgmental, it's like we are opening ourselves up to being judged by God in certain ways. We won't lose salvation, but we will lose something. And that should concern us. As Stott puts it, if we enjoy occupying the bench we must not be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. And in a rather frightening statement, Jesus says we'll be judged in the same way that we judge others. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And when he talks about measures, you can picture measuring out something to give to others. Say someone scooping food out on your plate at mealtime. Some might give a heaping, healthy portion. Others might seem to be rationing food. I think of someone cutting up birthday cake and asking how big of a piece you want. And then no matter how, what you say, they give you this massive chunk of cake. Jesus is essentially saying, how gracious are you being to others? How generous are you being in your opinions and attitudes towards them? Because if you're rationing grace, holding back love, not giving them the benefit of the doubt, not believing the best about them, it's like you're giving them a tiny slice of cake. So don't expect that God is going to slice off a big piece for you. It's sobering. Now, you might hear all this and think, Pastor Matt, I think you misphrased the point. And you said, we should not judge others for their faults, and then immediately clarified that there are times judgment's appropriate. Like what you really meant to say is something like, we should never be judgmental or censorious over others. And you're right. I phrase the point incorrectly if I leave it there. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. It's not a misphrased point. It's an incomplete point without what Jesus says next. And here's the whole point, all right? We should not judge others for their faults unless 
unless we first humbly judge ourselves for our own. This really goes for the appropriate form of judging, right? Judging according to the way of Jesus. Like this point doesn't then permit sinful judgmentalism under the right conditions. I'm not saying that. No, humbly judging ourselves first should actually vanquish judgmentalism in us. But we should never judge others for their faults unless we first humbly judge ourselves for our own faults. And Jesus says this through a very familiar image. Look at verse 3. It says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Jesus has been a carpenter, right? So maybe he's drawing on that background here. Say, hey, your friend's got a piece of a speck of sawdust in their eye. That's not good. But you have a log or a plank sticking out of your eye. Now, if that sounds like a ridiculous picture to you, that's because it's supposed to. It's absurd. Like no one walks around. with a two-by-four lodged in their eye. <laughs> and actually, the word that he uses is not just a plank. It's like a beam, a massive beam. But just imagine, right, someone walking around with this ocular obstruction <laughs> and not being bothered by it, not worried about it. In fact, not even noticing it, like Jesus says here. You don't notice. But instead, they're like, hey, you got something in your eye there. <laughs> it would even be crazy if it were reversed, right? <laughs> like if you were trying to get a log out of someone else's eye, but you got a speck in yours. I've had little bugs fly into my eye before. When that happens, it's all consuming. Right? I can't even think of trying to help someone else with their problem while I've got this little thing messing with my eye and my vision. But when we get the point of what Jesus is saying, compare this ridiculous picture to our ridiculous fault finding. All of a sudden, the joke isn't nearly as funny. Right? We, we so easily so fatally exaggerate others' faults while minimizing our own. Many of us have become blind to even noticing our ingrained sins. Sticking with the eyesight imagery, a while ago I noticed some floaters in my eyes and small dark spots floating across my vision. If you don't know what they are, about three-quarters of adults have them, actually. But before I knew they were harmless, I was alarmed by them. I went to the doctor. The optometrist told me that eventually my brain would adapt to the point where I don't notice them anymore. And I was skeptical, but he was right. My eyesight learned to, to tune them out most of the time. Sadly, though, 
I think we do similar with sins in our lives that are not harmless at all. At certain points, we we do notice that we have an issue, and we're alarmed by it. But if we don't ruthlessly repent, over time, we end up ignoring it and then forgetting it. Our spiritual minds adapt to not even notice how sinful we really are. And that's how we end up with a log protruding out of our eye. The truth is, we've all got plenty of sins and faults in our lives. And we shouldn't be judging others for their sins, pointing them out, trying to remove them, unless we first have our own sins identified and removed. Jesus is like, why do you notice their issues and not your own? How can you try to remove their sins if you haven't removed your own? Perhaps we're judging someone else's iffy language or clothing choices or schedules or entertainment diet or actual food diet or parenting philosophy or spending habits while being perfectly content with our own compromises. Comfortable with our gossip and lust, apathy, anger, coveting, unforgiveness, gluttony, or greed. Maybe we're judging someone else's level of spiritual commitment or maturity while our own prayer life is non-existent or our pride runs out of control. Kids, maybe you're always pointing out your siblings or your friends' faults while not being willing to admit where you're to blame. Pastor Matt Smethurst puts it well. He says, put simply, self-righteousness is the art of always being most bothered by somebody else's sin. To the degree you're aware of and grieved by your own faults, you'll extend charity toward others. To the degree you're not, you won't. What Jesus is especially targeting here is hypocrisy. And he says as much. Look at verse 5. It says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You might think, like, specks in eyes are still problems. Indeed, they are. We should still want to remove specks from others' eyes or sins from their lives. But first, we must get our own eyesight clear and restored. Until you can sing, I can see clearly now the sin is gone. (laughs) Don't go sticking your fingers into someone else's eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, hypocrisy really perturbs our world. For example, just consider how lately in the States, one president was accused of stealing classified documents, a crime that his opponents decried as totally irresponsible. It is. 
only to discover later on that the president on the other political side had done the same. People were rightly bothered, enraged by the blatant hypocrisy all around. Christians, though, in particular, are frequently accused of being hypocrites. Right? Maybe you've had that said to you before, which is a gross overgeneralization, of course. It ignores the fact that, that everyone on earth struggles to live in complete consistency with what they say they believe. Though sometimes a person is legitimately hurt by a Christian's clear hypocrisy. Maybe living one way at church and living a completely different way at home. So, so we shouldn't just dismiss this as a totally false accusation. And beyond that, if Jesus identifies us as a hypocrite, then we better sit up straight and pay attention. So how can or should we avoid hypocrisy if we're all hypocrites to some degree? How can we dislodge the logs from our eyes? It must begin with humility. Humility, which opens our eyes and our hearts up to receive the grace of Jesus. We've got to see our sin and be brutally honest about it. See our need for Christ. If, if you have trouble even identifying the logs, like, pay attention the next time that you notice someone else's problems and automatically think of yourself as superior to them. Because any time we think of that someone else is a worse sinner than us, it's probably a hint of a log. But once we truly see ourselves... We won't judge others the same way anymore. Matt Smethers explains that ultimately only one thing can uproot hypocrisy, can replace a desire to criticize with an impulse to encourage, can slay a judgmental spirit, humility, which comes from the grace extended to us in Christ. Only when grace rises like the sun in your heart will the darkness of hypocrisy and fault-finding flee. Like we have all been prideful, self-righteous, judgmental, censorious, hypocritical meddlers. Let's call it what it is. Sin. It's evil. Wretched. We are far worse than we like to imagine. But you can't just remove this sin on your own. Like you might be able to modify your behavior a bit, but you can't change your heart. Forgive the crime or really face the judgment it calls for and survive. Don't forget, like we tried to usurp God's place in this universe here. That's treason. And yet, and yet, God, in his love and his grace and his mercy, has provided a glorious solution to our, all our sin. The Lord, the judge himself, has stepped into our world and taken our sentence. As Jesus died on the cross, 
He was paying for every crime we've committed. He was making a way to to forgive our sins, to pardon them, to wash us, cleanse us from them, to make us new. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So how, do we, how can our logs of judgmentalism and hypocrisy get removed? They are pried out only by a couple of other large wooden beams. Only by the cross. And thus Martin Lloyd-Jones preached, we should live our lives in this world as people who have passed through the judgment in Christ and who now live for him and live like him, realizing that we have been saved by his wondrous grace and mercy. Have you been saved by his wondrous grace and mercy? Examine yourself honestly today. Humbly accept Jesus' assessment of you. And then confess your sin to him, believing that he wants to free you from them. He does. Believing that he died for them. And he's now the risen and reigning Lord. Choose to make a a clean break today with your sin. Because let me tell you, Jesus is so worth it. When he says, first take the log out of your own eye, this is how you do that. By the cross, Jesus simultaneously humbles us and lifts us back up again. And when that happens we become freed from the spirit of hypercriticism and hypocrisy. The gospel then frees us up to be able to truly help a friend in need of speck removal. As I said, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, picture trying to take something out of someone else's eye. It's really a delicate operation, right? The eye is one of the most sensitive areas of the body. As soon as you touch it, it reflexively closes. So we'd, if we were doing this, we'd be very gentle and, and careful about it. We need this kind of delicate gentleness when we do actually approach someone about their sin. We need humility, understanding, patience, mercy, and love. Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. You are going to handle a soul. You're going to touch the most sensitive thing in man or woman. How can we get the little speck out? There's only one thing that matters at that point, and that is that you should be humble, you should be sympathetic, you should be so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in another, far from condemning, you feel like weeping. 
You are full of sympathy and compassion. You really do want to help. You have so enjoyed getting rid of the thing in yourself that you want them to have the same pleasure and the same joy. Can you see the, the world of difference between sinful judging and sanctified judging? Like, we're not after condemnation and guilt tripping or humiliation anymore. We're after healing, rescue, restoration, joy, peace. And Jesus wasn't forbidding us from ever getting involved in other people's issues. Far from it. Like, after all, leaving a damaging sin unaddressed would hardly be loving. Jesus wasn't telling us just to, to mind our own business. He, was, he just wanted us to deal with our own business first. And because we naturally get so blind to the sin inside ourselves, I actually need your judgment of me. I need your reasoned, humble, gentle judgment of me to help me be sanctified. You, likewise, need the reasoned, humble, gentle judgment of fellow believers to help you grow in holiness. We can help each other as brothers and sisters here. So let's be loving enough to be compelled to speak the truth in love, even when it's hard, And let's be humble enough to receive the truth spoken in love, even when it hurts. There's one more observation to add here, as Jesus makes a comment in verse 6, which might seem random or unrelated at first, maybe even contradictory to what he said already, but there's a reason Jesus says this here. He says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that might sound familiar to you, but what does it mean? Why is it here? I think that Jesus was making sure we don't take what he just said too far. Because if we never exercise wise moral judgment, it swings the pendulum. And we fall into the opposite problems. Lax discernment or naive acceptance. No, we should never self-righteously judge others being hypercritical or hypocritical. But neither should we be oblivious to evil pretending everyone is the same. So Jesus can at the same time say, judge not that you be not judged and Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. In other words, we should not judge others for their faults unless obvious evil calls for holy discretion. We must not judge unless obvious evil calls for holy discretion. Now, this does not negate the need for gentleness, love, or humility. Those are always Necessary. It just means that sometimes we should not engage with hostility at all. Whether it's people who sinfully reject loving correction, who utterly refuse to repent, 
who want to keep living with the specs, or people who so oppose the way of Jesus altogether that they're unwilling to receive the gospel. That's when I believe Jesus gives permission here, even instruction to back away. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It might be startling to hear Jesus call people dogs or pigs, but Jesus never had qualms about calling a spade a spade. If certain people acted like these kinds of animals, if the shoe fit, so be it. In Jesus' day, dogs were not man's best friends or beloved family pets. They were wild, dirty scavengers who lived in squalor, usually in the town dump, and were public nuisances. Jews used the term dogs to describe enemies of God's people, outsiders, if you will. Jesus seems to be using it in a similar way to describe opponents of the kingdom of God. And pigs, as you know, were considered one of the most unclean animals, legally and literally. We might use the term to describe selfish or gluttonous people. That's not the case here. Jesus is more using it to describe sacrilegious or indifferent people. Like you can picture these pictures, right? Picture going up to a wild dog with some meat that was meant for a sacrifice in the temple, something holy in one hand, and some cheap ground beef in the other. Will the dog be able to tell the difference, or will they just devour it all? They can't recognize what's holy, and they don't care. And once they're finished, a wild dog can turn on you and attack you next. Or picture tossing a bunch of straw into a muddy pig pen for pigs to walk on, and then tossing a bunch of precious pearls into the pen as well. Will the pigs differentiate between the straw and the pearls? Will they care? No. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So what's the point? Be discerning about how and when you speak to outsiders. Because while some will be receptive and sympathetic or understanding, others won't be. Your loving judgment might be received more like judgmentalism by them. Or your gracious gospel witness might only invite mockery or sacrilege. And you don't need to provoke opposition unnecessarily. Besides, there are genuinely holy and precious things that we should honor and protect. Now, this doesn't mean we should treat these kinds of people with contempt, not in the least. Neither does it mean we should avoid sharing our faith because people might react negatively. The gospel needs to be heard by all, so spread it courageously. But, once someone does respond like an animal to it, let it lie. Maybe they're just not ready to hear it yet, but will be one day. There's a time and place for courage and a time and place for caution or shrewdness. 
I like how the New Living Translation puts it, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. So, when you speak, be wise and judicious about how and when and to whom you speak. Discernment or judgment is necessary. Even as we reject the judgmental spirit and as we humble ourselves under the judge of all the earth. We should never judge others for their faults unless we first humbly judge ourselves for our own and unless obvious evil calls for holy discernment. I hope that you've not only come to better understand what Jesus is talking about today, but that you've seen yourself in Jesus' words and are open to him changing your heart because he can do that today. He gave his life to take away your own evil and to fill you up to the brim with his grace. And really, that's the way of Jesus, exchanging evil with grace. Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to follow in his footsteps? Exchanging evil for grace. Father, please do this work in our hearts today. By your spirit, lead us to repentance. Thank you for your kindness to do so. Show us our sin, and then even far more so, show us your grace, your mercy that pours out for sinners like us. And may that then pour through us, flow through us to others around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.